Welcome to Constantinople, a podcast of the St. Constantine School. Thanks for listening. My name is Megan Muller. I've got here with me Dr. John Mark Reynolds. Yes, I am here. Is this my radio voice? Can I use it the whole time? No. Okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll stop now. David is the funny one. Is that what you're saying? David Gilbert's here too. Hi, how's it going? And Kate Gilbert. Hello. All right. Today we are going to talk about classical curriculum and why uh, wide exposure over a variety of subjects is key to putting together a good classical curriculum. So this is something, uh, this is Kate talking, that I, I really care about. Um, because As opposed to the other things we talk about? I know, about. we always talk about things I, I care about a lot, <laughs> but this one is something I've been thinking a lot about because one of the driving forces of getting me really passionate about particularly junior high and high school education was visiting local, expensive, high-quality high schools, yes. private high schools, and talking to juniors and seniors who had not read a book in English class. Now, so there's that, right? And that's like not a single book. Not a single book. Not a book book. Like yeah, they in were their reading. English class, it was, I'm raising it was May my hands for those who can't see what we're doing, yeah. saying, "How is that possible?" They they have a textbook. They read about reading. They read about writing. Um, sometimes they get some excerpts. Um, now, there's other schools Do that read. Do they think about thinking? I mean, this is yeah. just insane. No, and there's other schools that it. read four or five books a year. That would be very standard, about six books a year. So, but, so that is sort of like, okay, that, that's where American education has gone. Right. I get that. But then I started going to classical organizations and talking to other classical schools, and there was real pushback. Um, against a wide and broad curriculum because of a feeling that it was foregoing depth of reading. So that um, I, I got into a lot of conversations with educators who even at a classical school, their students would be only reading maybe six books in a year in English class right. because they claim, well, we're going really deep. Like we are just investing tons of time in Dante. These students are learning uh, how to read a text richly. I would really, in one way, like that to be true but I just cannot believe that we can forego a breadth of reading in junior high and high school for the sake of whatever this is apparently trying to do. So I get this criticism a lot in Tory Honors Institute at Biola University, which we started you know, many years ago and some of you were actually part of. And sometimes in the college program at St. Constantine, we hear this. What if we read fewer books and thought about them more? I think there are three things that you just caused to rise up in my soul <laughs> when I want to respond to this. And the first thing is um, kids who love to read, and that's our goal, to produce people who love to read, who read naturally, who read mm -hmm. fluidly, um, approach books in two steps. So the first time I read Lord of the Rings, the three-volume series, I know I was in seventh grade. I remember driving home, and it was raining, and I started reading, and I realized I had a lost weekend ahead of me. Mm -hmm. That was it. That was all I was going to do. I was a kid, so I could get away with that. I can tell you this. I skipped all the poems. I read quickly. I wanted to find out what happened with Frodo and the ring. I was really into Minas Tirith. I never read important parts of it. And then because I loved the book, I went back and read it deeply. Mm -hmm. And this is also true of very serious books like philosophy. The first time I read The Republic, which I did not enjoy, was for a class, and I read it relatively quickly. I kind of read it for meaning. All right, I get it. I'm a smart guy, so I passed whatever test they had to give me. And then I spent two years of my life reading it in depth and have spent 20 years thinking about two or three lines of the book. The truth is, 
I think, and Dorothy Sayers says this about Dante, uh, the Divine Comedy, the first time you read something, you should read it quickly. Unless you're going to become a scholar in that area, maybe you'll come back to it later mm -hmm. in life. But first, you need the big picture. When Hope and I go to a city, uh, the final thing is to say the blink principle really works. We'll go to a city like London, and we'll just go to every single tourista spot. There's a reason they're famous that's historical, and we'll get a blink principle of the city. The blink principle is you get a big percentage of what you're ever going to know in the first few seconds of experiencing something. Now, we don't then say we're London natives or <laughs> we know a lot about London, but we do when we go back the next time and we like going back to London. We're going to go uh, with the St. Constantine School. Megan is organizing a trip. Every time we go, then we plunge in depth into something because we have a big map of the city. So I'll finish and mm -hmm. say... If students don't have a big map of Western civilization, let alone global civilization in terms of literature, good luck finding your way around. Right. Oh, look, we have a kid who knows all about one Shakespeare play, but doesn't know Shakespeare wrote comedies or one comedy and one tragedy. Uh, I usually find that those students don't remember any of the details anyway. Uh, five years later. The Blink Principle works. They get 80% of what they got the first time they read it, and then you bore them for the rest of the year mm -hmm. with the same book. So there's my rant. But I have about 20 years uh, invested in a 30-some year educational uh, journey trying this out. And I can tell you this, none of my college students graduated as Homer scholars. I don't think I've ever produced one. And many of them went to classical high school, read Homer once, Iliad and Odyssey. Then they read him a second time, a little bit more in depth. I walk up to them. I don't give them a quiz on the characters in the Iliad. But I know this. They have a sense that from about 800 years before Christ forward to maybe about 1950 in our curriculum, they have a scope and sequence of what happened. Mm -hmm. So sorry, that's a long rant. But you got me worked up by hearing. That's just yeah. terrible. Classical schools are making a mistake. Well, it, it seems to me like a bad bargain, you know, like, oh, we, we care about going deeply and thinking well, which, of course, you must. Yes. And so we're going to forego reading widely. And I don't think those two things need to be opposed to each other. I don't want them to be opposed to each right. other. I think this is where the kind of conversations we have in great books class matter a lot, because you can think deeply, sometimes even about the same subjects over and over and over again using these different authors' perspectives. Right. I think that we have, in most of our grades, we have 20 or 30 books every year. Yes. That every student reads. Woo! Um, <laughs> Megan, your contribution so far is a whoa. <laughs> it was a timely whoa, we, though. We, we devote our <laughs> entire class time to discussing some aspect of the book or mm -hmm. maybe the book as a whole and having ex expecting the students to have read the books. There is absolutely depth that occurs in those hour-and-a-half sessions mm -hmm. over a week that people return to again and again and again. There's depth, and there are things that are brought up in one book that come up later mm -hmm. that we dive back into. Dive back into. So the discussion may not be complete a after a week of talking talking about you know whatever book, pick your book, Crime and Punishment. We spent two weeks on Crime and Punishment the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. Did we cover everything in that book? No, absolutely not. Yeah, but if you had spent two months, would you cover everything? No, actually, no, I don't <laughs> yeah, think so. There you go. But I, I think... I think something we would have had if we had two months on crime and punishment is crime and punishment fatigue mm. in a in a big way. And it's not because the book doesn't stand up to that depth. It's because the students are still young. Yes. And it's hard to spend that much time in one book without starting to feel 
like the text is exhaustible, when in reality, of course, we don't think any of these texts are exhaustible no. in the way that we're talking about. There's no being done with crime and punishment well, if for, you're a senior. Yeah, well, for yeah. instance, we spend, I think, one and a half or two weeks on the Republic in freshman year of high school. Senior year of high school, they go back to the Republic in senior ethics seminar, and you guys spend the semester on it. And yeah, here in the college yeah. program at St. Constantine, we spend another, what, two weeks on the Republic. So you'll have read the Republic three times if mm -hmm. you do the whole K through college St. Constantine curriculum. But I want to say this. I think Christians are always making the same mistake. We make subjective things, subjective words, objective, and we make objective things subjective. Uh, modesty is subjective, um, beauty is objective, and we invert them. So we focus on the subjective. What's the problem with depth? Uh, it's like trying to be humble enough. When have you <laughs> read The Republic in depth? Uh, is it when you're Al Geyer, my mentor who's in his mid-80s and would still say he could read the first line of the Republic and think about it again? Uh, does it occur uh, if a freshman spends 14 weeks only on the Republic. Is that depth? Mm -hmm. That's a subjective word. So notice the critic of a curriculum is always going to win if depth is the goal. Sure. Oh, you didn't read that deeply enough. Well, it's Macbeth. Of course I didn't read it deeply enough. I, I should just think about this the rest of my life. But we can't take every book that we should sh understand in depth and meet this kind of really wildly subjective standard. So as experts, and you know, I'm sitting in a room with experts on great text education, we try to walk down the middle of way sure. uh, where we say, okay, between kindergarten and college, you know what's going on in the Republic, and we hope you pick two or three of these books and you revisit them the rest of your life. But, you know, they're not going to pick all of them. We give them a broad enough depth. The other thing is, and, I, and this is where I want to throw it over to Megan to comment, is if we don't give them a broad depth, what if we don't pick a book that lights a fire under the student sure. that yeah. makes them in their 30s or 40s want to come back to it? For some people, Dante works. For some people, Plato works. For some people, it's all the way till we get to Steinbeck or Salinger mm -hmm. or some more modern author. Mm -hmm. I think actually I, I have a question for David um, because he designed and teaches our senior ethics seminar. Yes. Oh, and, what a masterful class that is. But it's a it's a challenging class because it's not a great I mean it's a great books class in the sense that it's in a discussion style. But the, those students are also taking an actual great books class. But the senior ethics seminar, how do you decide? <laughs> the one, two, three <laughs> philosophies to study in depth, and that's the only picture you give to your students. So I just wanted to ask David if you wanted to like say anything about the way that you put together the senior ethics curriculum and why you cover the number of texts and authors that you cover. Sure. Senior ethics, we go back and we look in depth at two difficult books that arrive that students read their freshman year. Plato's Republic and Nicomachean Ethics. And there are a handful of other books that we read. We read Symposium by Plato, Euthyphro by Plato. Uh, we read some Thomas Aquinas and uh, some David Hume at the end of the semester. Mm -hmm. Framing the semester, framing the year, is McIntyre's After Virtue, which was written 1982, I think, 1980, somewhere in there. All the rage when I was in grad school in the early 90s. It was the hottest book in ethics it was, for it was Christians. In, yeah, it was, it was in rage in the 2000s. All right. When... It's an enduring, in other words, it's a yeah. modern enduring work in philosophic ethics. Yeah, and so that book sort of charges you to go back to the ancients, to think hard about the ancients and how they thought about ethics. Right. We just sort of 
I mean, follow the lead of the book, but also follow the the spirit of the school and the philosophy of the school. I know at least one of your students looked at Graham Opie. Is that right? Kind of a yeah. critic of everything theistic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, maybe the best critic of theism. Yeah, part of right the now. class is reading these ancient writers, Plato and Aristotle, and then using them to engage with contemporary academic philosophical writing how would you respond because no matter what you do i always like right i'll write a blog post on the republic and someone will write but you didn't cite or quote x uh important thinker and it's true then immediately you're embarrassed but that's insane right there are so many important yeah, thinkers on plato and aristotle yeah. how did you decide i am back to megan's question because it's a great class it may be the single best experience that we offer right now actually Something I think, if, if you don't mind me no, answering the question, um, something I think that David did really uh, well was we thought about this class together as far as like what do we really want them to get? Like, mm. and Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, and Plato's Republic, we felt like, man, at 14, you're just, we want you to go back, right? We want you to really dig into some of those big ideas. But what David decided too was then to introduce the students to college level research and reading by giving them access to JSTOR and telling them to find modern critics of these oh, ancient ideas. So that way, he is not the arbitrator of ultimately what they read or what, which critic they read. They got to go find it for themselves and then respond to him, interact with him. And I think that's a really neat thing. So you do have some students who are interacting with Oppie. You have, I mean, I don't know who else. There was a lot of different choices. I always think of him yeah, I mean, as Andy Griffith's uh, son on the Mayberry show. So I like OB. to think of him as I, OB. I, I wish he was. Yeah, yeah. that would be an improvement. Be if nice you're out there him. listening, uh, Jesus is Lord. Get saved. <laughs> this reminds me of something that um, Kate actually spoke about to our high schoolers. We want our students as they get older, um, if you talk about you know the trivium, as they get into the rhetoric phase of their education, we talk about setting them free because we yeah. know that they're going to pursue the avenues that are best for them to pursue and I really like this idea of you know working through great books curriculum and then when they hit senior ethics their senior year in high school um, David's class allows them to decide like am mm -hmm. I going for width am I going for depth um, how many of these texts am I going to find modern critics for how many you know how many interactions am I really going to try to cover in my paper and I know that I'm sure as a teacher you still say you know, you cut it down. Scale back yeah. this thesis. No, you're not going to cover every single book that we talked about and find a critic for each, you know, each one of those people. But you know, so you're sort of helping, you know, arbitrate that process. But they start to get to sort of pursue how deep do I want to go right. or how wide do I need to keep yeah. it in order to keep the perspectives sort of balanced. Yeah. And I think I think that Plato's Republic and Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics both work excellently as far as like. If you take mature students who are who are engaged in the project and they, they've done some great books work in the past, sitting through those books for three months or something or two months, those books reward that sort of study and that sort of looking back that, on the text. And that sort of student. Right. You know, and that they're sort of ready student, yeah. well, for that I, kind you know, of debt. Uh, our sound technician, who also is a college <laughs> student here, a freshman, I got to just meet with him. He came out of your senior ethics class on the Republic. Uh, I suppose if there's any book other than the Bible I've spent my entire life thinking about, it's the Republic. And the college does one-on-one -on -one tutorials. We take it to the next level. And it was just fun to, to sit with Mr. Irwin and plunge deeper into a particular set of ideas we were looking at. But we here's the important thing to hear. We skim the surface of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think that's something to remember. <laughs> like, like, you're not going to get as, I mean, we've already said that, in this discussion, but you're not going to get the total depth 
of Plato's Republic. <laughs> Um, yeah. I clear that I do not have so the total depth. Let me say something like it, to kind of put our philosophy in a nutshell. Like what we've decided, the hill we've decided to die on is you must know what's happening in Western civilization. You right. just have to. Like we have to give you as best we can a picture of the breadth of the ideas and the interactions and the wars of ideas that are happening. And so we fight every summer. Let's have faculty come together. The humanities faculty come together. The great book the throw, throw down. The throw down. Oh. And we assess our curriculum and we say, okay. I can't even go to that. It no, we don't let so you. It's right. like, it's too hard. We like, you still come though. Yeah, I know. Still I stick my head in. Ah. And it's, it's great. Defend Christina David, Rossetti. You know, David's an analytic philosopher. Megan's husband, John, really cares about the historians. Dr. Bartel's a poet. And I love novels. And so between right. us, we're fighting each other for these kind of really personal preferences. And I think we find a good balance in not like, I would be like, yeah, Thucydides, who needs him? And John's like, oh my gosh, how dare you? And, <laughs> and then I come in yeah. and say, there are no female authors in this. Yeah, I we feel this sad. We don't do that. Uh, so, uh, well, we, we do when yeah. it's in some, there are some semesters like that when we get really heavily into monasticism or something. So so this is this is something we take really seriously because I want someone to know uh, who Charlotte Bronte is, so that if that's the book that they that catches them, they go back to Victorian novelists in college or something like that. Um, but I wanted to expand this conversation to other subjects too, mm -hmm. because this is something I think that we as classical educators need to uh, be the champions for, which is that the math, the maths, the science, uh, music, and art are just as important to a classical education and to the breadth of what you need to know about the world as a wide range so of reading. I, I don't want to do a commercial, and we don't do everything as well as we should, and we should do some things better. But Kate, you've really taken leadership in this. Um, I'd match our math program to most local colleges. Uh, we do math really well right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're headed that high way five, with David. science. <laughs> uh, David and I both teach math. Yeah. yeah. Not in high school, it. but you know. Yeah. Sixth grade. <laughs> but because, well, I mean, Plato, so if we're going to loop back to the books we read, when Plato's telling everybody you have to know geometry to get into the academy mm -hmm. and a classical school ignores math, uh, that's a problem. And if they ignore science, that's a problem because these writers invented science. I, I will say this, though. STEM classes, as they're called now, usually get covered because parents demand them and the workplace demands them. What I think we doubled down on right away, uh, K through college, art and music. We started with a full-time music teacher when we were really struggling, when we had to go forward. We have what amounts to you know, full-time art coverage. It's not okay for a kid in seventh grade to stop doing anything other than the thing they're naturally good at. Well, and I think this is true within the like core academic subjects as well. Uh, we're in Houston, we're in a very engineering, medical heavy city, yes. and so I think that we do have a good emphasis on math and science by our parents, by our board members, but speaking from experience as a really excellent high schooler and college student um, who everybody let skate by on math because I was a really good student. Right. And so, oh, if you're bad at math, I guess you're just bad at math. And no, that's not the answer. Like, right. I should have been made to be as good in math as I was in the humanities. It's not some sort of incapacity in me, but I was totally allowed to skate by, and I really wish I hadn't been. I think you do right to steer us toward talking about this in, in areas other than literature, because um, I'm always reminded of 
a um, a quotation by Plutarch. Um, Plutarch says, I don't remember where, but he says that um, education isn't filling a bucket, but kindling a fire. Yeah, I like that. And we talk about, you know, like ima- you know, you imagine filling a bucket with water. We've talked about it in in the sense that when we're when we're discussing literature, we don't ever want to make our kids think they can. Okay, we'll wash our hands of that book. We've covered it all. Like mm-hmm. that's all there needs to be said about that. It's exhaustible, and we've done it. Right. We know that we don't want them to feel like that about books, and so we frustrate them by making them move on. Like, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, that's it. We've had a week and a half on this book. Now we're going to talk about something else. They say every time, no, can we have another day? We didn't do this. Can we have another yeah. class? And we say, nope. The train keeps. Moving and you're frustrated because it's it's kindling a fire in you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it makes you re- it makes you think to yourself, I'm not done with this. I know I have to move on right now, but I want to go back. And they can't go back to everything, and that's fine. But it makes them understand that there's no way that we're going to we're not trying to tell them. Okay, that's it. You've got it. You yeah. understand it all. Absolutely. Now you can move on. You don't have to think about it again. The bucket's been filled. You know. I- I think that's so true that I just want to underline it by saying it's not okay to become early in your life. And I'd say that's through your 20s, only one side of yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this is the problem. We talk about that. You know, maybe we can get people to agree with us that that's true about about literature. Maybe we can. Though th- this the basis of this discussion about wide exposure being the key to classical curriculum, we started with literature because it's a sort of a revolutionary. Yeah, it's, so far, it's very counter- few people right. consider this alone counterintuitive. I think we've all convinced ourselves very yeah. handily. But this is totally applicable. Um, I teach eighth grade algebra. It's totally applicable in mathematics. And I can speak about that from experience all the time in my class I have to fight the te- I'm using a math textbook I'm trying to, I'm using the best algebra te- math textbook I could find I'm using the Forrester textbook which I enjoy but all the time I have to fight the book's impulse to make the students think that they have an exhaustive understanding of the mm. concept that I'm teaching them because mm. algebra one it's like every every piece of math you teach it like it's the only thing that's true because if you blow their minds with the little piece of the giant picture that they're learning yeah. right now, it might be too overwhelming for them when they're very young. But I do it to my eighth graders. I have to constantly. We started very basic. We started with adding and subtracting positive and negative numbers, which they learned in pre-algebra. I had to start with talking about Okay, well, you know, here's the opposite inverse, the additive inverse of a number. You imagine a number line. Where's six? Where's negative six? Where's zero? Okay, they're additive inverses because when you add them, they cancel each other out. That's the way you teach that to them. But then you start saying things like, you can divide zero by a number. The answer is zero. But if you divide six by zero, the answer is undefined. What does that mean? The answer is not zero. The answer is undefined. Why do we have numbers that aren't defined? It's not yeah. a number. We can't even say it's a number. What does it mean for there to be imaginary numbers? Mm-hmm. What are we doing when we're using square roots? There are all these concepts that the book makes you think that you understand. Um, I've been teaching my students axioms and properties right now. You learn a lot of properties um, in geometry, but you learn them in algebra because you're using them in algebra, but no one told you you were using them. So my kids know how to solve for X. They know how to like look at a little equation, 2X plus 4 equals 8, and they can solve for X. But they don't understand that every step of the math that they're doing is something they're taking for granted, that it took people maybe thousands of years to decide is true. And some of the things aren't even things that are actually true about numbers. They're just things that all the people in the world decided we needed to be true so that everyone would do math the same way. Mm -hmm. So I have to explain to them, I know you've been told the order of operations is the only way to do math. You know, you start with your whatever. People use like, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, you know, parentheses, (laughs) exponents, all that stuff. 
the order in which you perform the mathematical functions, that's not because of the nature of numbers. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it has to be done. But if everyone was going to get the same answers, we all need to agree to do it the same way. But they don't understand what's arbitrarily chosen by humans and what is actually true about numbers. Oneness plus twoness is threeness. Mm -hmm. So right now in my class, I'm having this discussion. There's a difference between what we call an axiom and what we call a property. And I'm not going to teach them. I say what the book says is the difference and they are problematizing it for me because I'll show them an axiom and say, this is an axiom. We can't prove that it's true, but we assume that it's true. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, I feel like we need to prove that that's true. And I say, I don't know what to tell you. You should maybe look up why axioms and properties sometimes don't seem to be making sense. And you just have to sort of drop into the math curriculum like, whoa, this is a big confusing question. I wonder why we're doing things this way. And then eventually they start thinking about math that way too. It's really, really important for them because otherwise they get this attitude toward math where it really is like, okay, we're kindling a fire in literature, but we're filling a bucket in math. You just need to, we need to write off. Yes, you can do STEM subjects. That makes colleges want to, you know, admit you and people want to hire you, but it's it's a fire to be kindled there as well. Mr. Muller and I, recently covered a class uh, for Mr. Yi, yeah. who's teaching um, eighth grade. I think it's physical, physical science. science. Yeah. And all Mr. Yi told us was that it needed to be like an hour and 15 minutes on the order of the universe. And so we talked about the Fibonacci sequence, the oh. golden mean, the golden ratio. And we started with Plato because he's the first person recorded to talk about it. He says, draw a line for me and cut it unevenly. It turns out it's very difficult to cut a line unevenly because what he means is cut it in a way that doesn't give you um, a rational fraction. So it can't be, you know, you cut a line, you say, Oh, sorry, you cut it into halves. You cut a line again. Oh, sorry. That's one third. You cut a line again. Oh, sorry. That's one twenty-fifth. You have to find an irrational number. And it turns out that's the Fibonacci sequence. It's the golden mean, it's the golden ratio. And that's what they're discussing in Plato. And it gets used in the Timaeus for, you know, all the elements and things like that. But we started showing it to the kids. Um, we, I first explained it in math. I explained it in one dimension with the line. Then I explained it in two dimensions and then I explained it in three dimensions. And then we started looking at where the golden ratio shows up in nature and their minds were blown and I was just (laughs) blazing through it. Like I made sure they understood the math as much as they could. And then I said, wow, this math is really hard. We don't really understand it. Do we? And they were like, no, we don't. (laughs) And then we move on to the next thing. We're looking at it in two dimensions. You know, we're looking at it with uh, squares and the, you know, a spiral moving through squares and rectangles. And then I was like, wow, this is really hard. I don't think we really understand it. We should move on. And then we just kept saying, wow, we don't get this fully. Look how cool it is. And then applying it further and further, three dimensions, four dimensions. And by the end of the class, I mean, I think it's why kids like conspiracy theories. I don't know. Kids are always like (laughs) Illuminati and things like that around because they feel like there's something that they're, there's no way for them to get to the depth. Like there's no way for them to fully plumb the depths of it. And they should feel that way about every subject. I I think that's why so many young adults are disappointed in church because they have a sense that, oh, I've heard that before. I've heard Mm -hmm. that answer before. I know what to say. In fact, I know what pastor is going to say about any topic because it's always the same. Let me push this really hard and say to classical educators who might be listening, remember why you have school to start with. Mm -hmm. Uh, For most jobs that most of our students are going to get, very little education is necessary. Basic reading, basic writing, kind of numeracy. Uh, Lots of Reynoldses didn't go past the eighth grade for hundreds of years and had really satisfactory middle and upper middle class lives. You just don't need that much school. 
Why do we do school the way we do? Why do we have school that goes from 1 through 16? Mm -hmm. Yes, sometimes there are some technical things we need to learn in fields like nursing by the time we get to college. But mostly, it's because we're trying to make whole human beings who are full of interest, who are civilized, who are cultivated. Do you know enough science so that when you drive over to Rice and talk to your friend who's an engineer, they're not speaking an utterly foreign language? Yeah. Do you know enough math and enough history so that when a politician says something super crazy, you can stop and say, well, that's just not right. So a civilized person knows they don't know very much, mm -hmm. but they know just enough to know how to find out more or when people have fallen off the end. So you talk about conspiracy theories. The problem with them is always something like this. I wish they were true because if the Rosicrucians controlled everything, we'd have better heraldry, for example, in the United States. <laughs> well, that's what's important. Right, exactly. <laughs> and But what you find out in those conspiracies is they just start saying things that are more and more improbable, and you start stacking yeah. improbabilities up, because what? You have a sense of how Western civilization went. You have a sense of how people behave, how science works, how math works. And the conspiracy starts to become just dumb and real science, real math, real history, real theology, real philosophy become more interesting because they're not just a set of right answers. Right. Yeah, this is something that I've been I've been really pleased with what we've been able to do, and I think it's mostly to the credit of the faculty like Megan, like David, yeah. who had to step out to meet with his students, so you won't hear from him again in this podcast, but it's not just because he's fallen dead or I'm something. I'm David. Uh, faculty like Mr. Yi, whose class load this year is physics, advanced physics, physical science, logic, and great books one, ancient literature, right? right? We have experts like Melissa Nakshu, who's teaching all of our advanced math for upper and high school, but she's the kind of expert who expands their understanding out into the universe. She wants them to understand where math is folded into the very fabric of how we live. Um, I, that's the education I wanted. And that's right. the education I would have needed. I need to know that algebra is a series of, <laughs> there's a leaf blower literally walking right by us. So, But I needed to know as a student that science is a series of discoveries, that right. algebra is a series of discoveries like you were talking about, Megan. And that's not how I was taught. Mm -hmm. I was taught, here's the thing, do it, memorize it. And well, if you needed to become an engineer, which my dad was, and he said algebra is very important, but I was like, I'm not going to be an engineer, so I guess I don't need to learn it. Whereas if I had thought about it as part of the great fabric of how we know what we know, I think I think I could have been a much better student. I, I was almost a history teacher. Like if I lived my life yeah, over sure. again, I could see teaching 10th grade social studies uh, history forever. Um, one problem I always had with the way it was taught, and I did teach it briefly, uh, was that people gave you the big book of answers. Oh, mm -hmm. this is how history went. Um, Napoleon III, hero or villain? Uh, well, that's a really hard question. And I'm pretty sure nobody listening, uh, maybe Hunter Baker or something, cares about who Napoleon III is. But you, we learn about Napoleon III because it helps us think about how complicated people are. Mm -hmm. uh, how, what's it like to be the nephew of a world-class genius who was also kind of a tyrant when you're not that good at anything? <laughs> uh, and, a relevant he, question for us all. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, and, and, the, and the complexities of that, 
you can't just go read one book. And I pick this kind of minor from an American point of view figure because if history is taught as we have to think about this or we're only getting a fragment of what happened. When I was a kid, the American Civil War, I knew all the Union generals, I knew all the Southern generals, I knew the battles, my parents took us to battlefields. For an eighth grader, I probably knew a lot about mm -hmm. the Civil War. What somebody needed to do, and I did on my own, fortunately, thank God, because I had good parents, but I never got in class, was somebody to expand and say, I wonder what the slave over in that building was thinking while this battle was taking place. I wonder mm. what the women were doing back home. And this goes on at PhD levels and sometimes in schools, but then it's generally just because, oh, we have to have a woman's voice in the curriculum and it becomes, here's what women in the Civil War thought. Yeah. Instead of, there were tens of millions of people uh, having experiences in the Civil War. We could think about one day of the Civil War forever and never get a quote unquote full perspective. So we're back to depth. Mm -hmm. uh, when somebody says to me, oh, it's all about depth, I will say, do you cover the Battle of Antietam? Mm -hmm. Yes, we cover the Battle of Antietam. Clearly it brought on the Emancipation Proclamation and all the good that came from that. How do you cover the Battle of Antietam in depth? I just finished a biography of the Union General George B. McClellan. Um, you could think about just that man for the rest of your life and it would pay mm -hmm. in your regular life. What's it like to be a man who by the time he's 30, everyone believes is the Napoleon of the West and a world-class genius militarily who fails hmm. and who covers for his failure by believing bizarre things. No, I'm not going to be called to be a union general, but he's a pretty good example of a guy who got data lock, who was always, he would study a problem so much that he couldn't make decisions. Mm. And so opportunity after opportunity failed. Famously, Lincoln once asked if he could borrow the Army of the Potomac because McClellan was spending so much time figuring out what he should do with it. <laughs> so, you know, if you don't get to that depth in the Battle of Antietam, should I write you a nasty letter at mm -hmm. your classical school and say, look at that wonderful lesson you just missed being able to share with your kids? No. What you do is say to them, oh, yeah, we spent today talking about the Civil War. Too bad that we can't just drive to all these battlefields mm -hmm. and think about this for the rest of our lives because yeah. we could. Well, and this is why though we, we talked about a little bit with high school and, and the seniors going back to the Republic. But um, this is why so much of classical education is intentionally cyclical. Yes. Um, our history curriculum is the most um, obviously so. We start actual history instruction <laughs> in pre-K-4 which very few programs do. It's very difficult. We couldn't find a satisfactory history program designed for children it's that true. young. So we designed one based on art. And art was a really wonderful way for us to capture small moments or particular moments or particular movements. So what are students going to learn about the Vikings when they're a kindergartner or first graders, the first graders that are doing that? They're going to learn about long ships because those are a remarkable thing. Yes. And they're going to make some well, little cool. things and they're <laughs> cool. Are they going to learn much more about the Vikings? Nope. <laughs> but they're going to come back to the Vikings when they're in third grade, and then we'll see what else they can learn. And hopefully that little longship experience was sticky enough that they remember, oh, this is about where they are on the timeline. This is about where they are in the world. And they made those really cool boats. What else should I know I, about them? Yeah. Almost for sure it's weird you picked that example. We'll have a podcast listener who is a 
American expert on the Vikings yeah. <laughs> and goes to reenactments and and did I think uh, a podcast with us once that was lost forever for mm -hmm. all of eternity. And no matter what we do, this is what's worth saying. No matter how much I read and became like a little local expert, he would school me and mm -hmm. say, "Come on, man, you should know more." I, that doesn't discourage me. That means, oh my gosh, that's what heaven's for, eternity. There's mm -hmm. so much to know. Our uh, shameless plug for our, our school's blog, our first grade class, Mrs. Yee, oh, yeah. um, designed that curriculum. It's history through art. And uh, she does a series of uh, posts on our blog where we take pictures of the stuff that mm -hmm. they've been doing. They do a lot of like art recreations. Um, and the, the post this week that got uploaded um, they made a, the group together made a big mosaic of the Empress Theodora that's based on a Byzantine mosaic from the sixth century. So they, you know, they learned about Justinian and Theodora, and they're learning about the Byzantium and all this stuff. And Probably then they, not everything about Theodora. No, I'll just no, say. not everything, <laughs> but a lot. You know, she's she's the she's she she's can a be. Saint. Revisited later. That's right. Yeah, when they're not first graders. <laughs> um, so they made their mosaic, and that was great. And then today, I was walking through the hallway, and our high school, our high school art one class, yeah. was out in the hallway, all of them sketching icons today. There's a cycle to the way our students are approaching knowledge, so that hopefully they are constantly realizing that they didn't learn all there was to know, mm -hmm. and they don't know that at the time necessarily. But the older they get, they might say, "Huh." I learned about the Byzantine Empire in first grade, fourth grade, sixth grade, yeah. and high school. Every time there was more to learn than what I had learned previously, perhaps I will never learn all of it. And, and that's if, a good attitude to have. And if you come to college here, we'll have to apologize because Father Damascene is hanging over our heads saying, your undergraduates don't know nearly enough about the Byzantines <laughs> because it's a it's an endless fun thing. So, you know, to bring it back to our original topic, that's why this accusation of death is never a good thing. So what are schools for? We don't want to just leave people thinking, oh, you just have this fuzzy notion of cool things you're interested in. And right. you have like 18 cool anecdotes about 18 different people. This comes down into certain basic skills that are life good. Uh, reading well, reading different kinds of literature well. Yes. Half of my apologetics work would be over if people learned how to read old books differently than the newspaper. Mm. Like it's insane. Insane Christian beliefs about the Bible, insane atheist beliefs about the Bible. So you read well, write well, think well, be numerate, understand the scientific methods mm -hmm. that there isn't just one. Man, that's a good thing. And you do it through this interesting spiral that all of our kids go through starting at what's our youngest student is four and our oldest student's 26, mm -hmm. something like that at one of the college students. Yeah, so, say not in high school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah if you're on. still in high school at 26, <laughs> you're having a good time, that's probably. Right. <laughs> all right, well, uh, thanks, guys. That was a great yeah, conversation, hopefully uh, helpful to our listeners. If you want more, more from our faculty, you can check out our YouTube channel. We've got a number of lectures posted from many. We have a many. YouTube channel? Yeah, we do, indeed. If you just look up the St. Constantine School, you're you'll see. You're doing too much, man. Can I our, can't keep up. <laughs> the Teacher Talk series, and we've got lectures from the last two years of the existence of the St. Constantine School that you can check out. We've also got our faculty blog. It gets updated three times a week at stconstantine.org slash blog. That's actually the only blog I read all of, not because I work here, 
but because we have really cool people who are always doing interesting things, and I don't get to talk to them about those things often. Yeah, I do my job of uploading those very slowly because they are a treat. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Fun to sit with. All right, uh, thanks for listening. This has been Constantinople, a podcast of the St. Constantine School.